Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome to uh, our conversation on building an innovation engine. Our guest today is Kush Watwa. Kush is the CEO of Trilateral Research, a research-driven consulting and tech business uh, based in London. And I've known Kush for over 20 years, right? Nearly 25 years. It's, uh, it's a scary long time. You started your career at DoubleClick. Right, and online advertising. Then you were a biometric consultant, and you know for the last twenty years involved in various entrepreneurial ventures. The last example being Trilateral. Kush, welcome to the show. Today we want to talk about the Trilateral story, really, which I think in in, in my mind is a transformation case study. It's the journey from how do you take a traditional research-driven business and really turn it into a research-driven provider of technology solutions and another general headline, right? Providing AI for good. You know, I'd been an entrepreneur for a very long time and had started a company in the UK to pursue a variety of research work. And and I had received a research project, a research contract from the European Commission. In that context, I met my partner, David Wright, He had started trilateral research and had also been working for the European Commission on a variety of different research projects. And as we started working together, we realized that we had a very similar mission and a similar vision and and perhaps even a similar approach to how we wanted to operate. And so we merged our companies in 2009 and we hired our first employee in 2010 and we continued to do a lot of research. We, we applied for a lot of different types of research projects, and we began to build a portfolio of research projects. And in the time that when it first started, really, our model was really that of the impacts of policy, of new legislation, emerging technologies. And so the kinds of impacts we were looking at were you know, privacy impacts or data protection impacts ethical impacts, socioeconomic impacts. And so all of that work in those years really was around informing policy at the EU level. And so we contributed significantly to creating impact from research, contributed to policies and laws at both the national level as well as at the EU level. But there were a variety of different things that we did as well at that time that were different in that we took a very grassroots approach to doing research. So it was not just that the types of research we did was not just based on what I was interested in or what David was interested in. But as we built the team, we realized that our researchers had a varied interests. And so we applied for a very diverse set of, of research projects. And that helped us build a pretty diverse funnel of research work. And we used that to really create a track record of impact from research. You know, that we found that that research-driven impact model very much resonated with the team that we were building, that it resonated with the team that we were hoping to attract. And, you know, many, many, many people that we would hire had just finished their PhDs and were looking at academic careers. 
careers and, and other commercial careers as well, but they felt that they would potentially be siloed in, in, in a particular type of research work, whereas they wanted to pursue different types of, of interest, but most of all, they wanted to find a way to create impact. And so um, our, our approach of considering their, uh, their interests and our emphasis on impact effectively helped us hire some very good researchers who felt very passionately about the work that they were doing and the impact that it was having. That was like the first part of the journey, right? You build up into a very sizable organization, but I guess along the way, something's changed, right? And you decided to go beyond your research roots. Tell us about how you got to that point and how did you go on that journey? So research, as you may know, is, and particularly in our model, was a cost plus model. And so as our team was growing in 2016, you know, we were all really enjoying the work we were doing. We gained a lot of satisfaction from the work that we're doing. But in 2016, we realized that a cost plus model was simply not a good sustainability mechanism for the company. We needed to diversify our revenue. We needed to diversify our business model. We needed to fundamentally change the manner in which we engage with our clients. We needed to diversify our team. We were quite flummoxed, frankly. What is it that we could do at this stage? It's, it's not that we could take the work that we were doing and then suddenly pivot to being able to offer that to big pharma or big tech or you know financial services. We really had to take a look at the assets that we had within the team or within the work that we had been producing and to see where it is that we could go. That effectively embarked us on a journey of transformation. And that transformation is what where we had to fundamentally change the manner in which we engage with our clients or we needed to diversify our team as well as our business models. And so we embarked upon the shift from a research-driven impact model to a research-driven innovation model where we were looking to leverage our research into commercial service offerings that we could then deploy. And so as part of that, one of the first things we did was to create a multidisciplinary team. So as part of our social science team, we already had legal scholars, privacy and data protection scholars, but also um, you know, people with expertise in economics or, or sociologists or you know, um, other types of sort of social services, uh, social sciences expertise. So effectively, we added technical services to our team building expertise within AI, data science, and machine learning, and, and big data, and so on. And so that helped us to have a good multidisciplinary team where we had covered a lot of the disciplines. But then we had to learn how to do interdisciplinary work. And that's difficult because, you know, a lot of organizations talk about doing interdisciplinary work, but, but then to, to being able to do it in an applied manner is difficult. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was fundamentally our culture that enabled us, those teams, i.e. those teams, the social scientists and technical scientists, to be able to come together and have disruptive dialogue or constructive uh, dialogue that helped them have conflict or churn through some difficult ideas and to being able to innovate. So we had to learn how to do interdisciplinary work. And from that, we launched a variety of different businesses. The first thing that we did was that because we'd already been doing quite a bit of privacy and data protection work, and at the same time, we wanted to leverage an opportunity that was emerging because within the public sector, as well as in government, there was a lot of impetus to move towards better data governance and data protection practices. And so, as you know, there was a law that was introduced in Europe, which is called the General Data Protection Regulation, which is an omnibus law that regulates all processing of data in Europe. And so as part of our 
research work, we had done a study for the European Commission on the, some of the early drafts of that law that had come out. And in 2012, we'd done a socioeconomic impact assessment of that early draft of the GDPR. And so we leveraged that and some of our other work within this arena to launch a consulting practice at the same time as the GDPR came into effect in 2018. And so that was adopted quite quickly. We were lucky, actually, because the first solicitation to which we responded was for the University of Cambridge and its subsidiaries. And we won that contract and they are still a client of ours. And then building on that, we built an overall practice within data protection that is now currently serving a variety of different customers that were adjacent to our original set of customers, mostly in the public sector, but also health, education, the civil society, and some other sectors. So that sounds like that was the first step in the journey, right? So you went from, we're going out there, we're getting research grants to now we're not only offering insights in our society deals with technology, we're actually helping organizations deal with the implications and the regulatory requirements, in this case, GDPR. So where did you take it from there? as we were building on our interdisciplinary work and, and investing more within the technical sciences, we had been looking at producing AI and we'd been trying to see where are the right opportunities for producing AI and what are the kinds of things that we could do that would resonate within our culture and within our values and, and the kind of work that we wanted to do. As you very well know, the drive for AI over the last decade has been quite significant. Within the private sector, there has been considerable adoption as well as in the consumer market, it has been significant and considerable adoption option and that sort of juggernaut is moving at a pretty fast pace but that same thing has not been the case for the public sector which is still moving towards its own push into digital transformation and moving on that journey and certainly that's been hastened by COVID but nonetheless there are a variety of other constraints that they faced where they couldn't just go to big tech and immediately implement a solution that was fit for their purpose because their data is highly siloed. They're under a lot of regulatory and other oversight. If you look at the austerity of the, over the last decade, as well as the, the crisis coming out of 2009, public sector budgets have been quite flat with increasing demand and increasing pressure to make sure that the outcomes remain the same. And so we felt that we could work with them in a co-design manner to produce fit-for-purpose solutions that would serve their needs. And part of the sort of internal drive was also to attack sort of complex social and societal problems, because internally we very much felt that we wanted to be one part of a larger ecosystem for some of these very difficult social and complex problems to being able to provide them with sort of adequate technological solutions that they could use to fundamentally change the way in which they were treating vulnerability of persons and humans and how they could be better informed for that. And so over the last uh, several years, we have been building and have are currently rolling out a variety of different software applications. The first one is CCM, which is an application that does data-driven analysis to help law enforcement and local authorities and local government to help them identify children at risk of exploitation and to help them safeguard those children. And so this is an application that we've been building for the last couple of years. Prior to that, I would say that there was a two-year journey to being able to get access to police data related to such vulnerable persons. And so, you know, it was, it, was, it was really fantastic that we already had a practice that focused on data protection, data ethics that helped us 
being able to gain access to data and to being able to provide assurances to law enforcement that we would be able to handle their data carefully and to work with them to create things that were really particularly fit for purpose for them. And that was the first application we launched. The second was Hammock, which is an application that is targeted at the defense and humanitarian space, mostly to understand risks to human security. So that comprises all kinds of things, you know, from modern slavery, human trafficking that may be taking place or gender violence or children in armed conflict or cultural property protection or protection of civilians, all the way to things around sort of economic security or food security and, and those kinds of things. And then the third application that I'd like to talk about is, is Triad, which is not specifically targeted at a specific problem like child exploitation or human security, but does wider data-driven analysis. And so that gives you a sense of the kinds of products that, that we have created. We also launched accompanying services like a data service, which effectively gives organizations the ability to license data from us. We've also launched a team that does work in the area that is called Sociotech Insights Group that helps with the adoption of these applications as well as to optimize the use of our applications. Fundamental to what helped us build this applicate, these applications and to make that that journey, that five-year journey from 2016 to 2021, that journey of transformation, fundamental to that was our values and our culture, effectively our collaborative and open environment. So in the end, where we came out at the end, the end this journey was really to take a research organization and transform it into a research-driven innovation company where we can, on a recurring basis, create innovations and for long-term innovations that feed back into our research projects as well. So effectively creating a complete innovation engine. And, and I hope that we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that too. I think what's really admirable about what you and your team have been doing is taking a business research, right? Well-established, well-understood, strong track record, and adding to that additional self-sufficient businesses like the data service or the GDPR service, or, or the technology work, and then thread that and connect that so that actually the research fuels that. I think that's a real differentiator. And I think the other piece that I'm really impressed with is just the co-design approach. I can only imagine how challenging that can be in the public sector. Maybe it's different in the UK than in the US, right? But I think in general, people consider it's, it's difficult, right, to drive change in the public sector. And so kudos to you and your team to, to pulling that off. What I'd love to, before we go into kind of like what it takes to build this innovation engine, it sounds like a very linear journey, A, B, C, D, and, and we get E. And the reality is, it's never like that, right? That pivot from, from, from a cost plus model to being able to move to these other diverse business models, may that be in consulting or the provision of software, as a service, that was hard. I mean, I, one of the things I always like to say is that when you're going from one point to the other point, you, you can, you know, the shortest distance between those two points would be a straight line. And frankly, you can see that straight line and you can see that journey, but that's never the case, right? It's never a straight line. That for us has required for us to be agile and it has required the team to be responsive and to being able to learn as they go, right? If I could, I'd like to talk about challenges on both sides. One in, on the product side, in terms of the actual sort of complexity of building the product, but also on the, on the business side. The end result of where we've reached with the products is that one, they were built with in, in a co-design manner, again, either working with law enforcement or with defense or with other organizations that were feeding in their own processes and their own constraints and their own sort of requirements and those sorts of things. 
but also the fact that we built them with a very strong eye on responsible data protection and data ethics practices. We have an ethicist who's very much embedded within our data protection person and a data ethics person who's very much embedded as part of our product development teams. The applied piece of that was difficult. At times we had to create ways of doing things. We had to figure out ways of doing things that were just hard. And that led to what we talk about and call sociotech innovation, right? Where we brought together the social scientists and the technical scientists, and then the domain experts in each one of those areas that we were talking about, as well as experts from within each one of those vertical sectors that we wanted to target. And so we had to learn how to do sociotech innovation, and that took time, and it took a lot of openness and agility on the part of the team. But then we also did a variety of other things. So for example, there has been a lot of talk around automated decisions that are made by AI. And so none of our applications make any kind of automated decisions. We always sort of position them as, as the human in the loop. And so in effect, our data-driven analysis is informing professional judgment. That was a journey to get to that particular place, but then that was received very much with a very good reception from our target markets. On the business side, as every entrepreneur knows, uh, cash flow is an enduring challenge. And, and because of our research model, this was particularly difficult. But we invested in organic growth and we invested in our people and we invested in our infrastructure. We were able to find our path that has led us here. We had to learn how to manage fast growth. Right? We were growing quite fast. We're over 100 people now, and we are continuing to grow at a good pace. And so we have to learn how to manage fast growth. And, uh, fast growth. and that means that you've got to be able to lay out the vision. You've got to be able to ensure that team members are well aware of the part of that journey that you're in, but that the teams are able to evolve as we grow and that our processes and our communications and, and all of those sorts of things are fit for purpose for the stage at which we are at. And I think that building that sort of evolution within the company and within the teams, being able to sort of do recurring evolutions as we got to the next milestone or the next part of our journey was very important. And, you know, we made our mistakes and we learned from those. And I think that we got up from there and picked up and carried on. That gives you a sense of some of the challenges that both in the building of the products as well as in, within the business itself. So let's talk about what advice you have for others who are facing similar challenges to really manage a rapidly scaling organization, but also at the same time transforming the underlying business. I would say first, invest in values and your culture. Invest in those aspects and then continue to invest in them on an ongoing basis. Because as the team grows, those values and the culture that you think that you have may not be consistently applied or may not be being rolled out in a, in a structured manner. And I think it's, it's very, very important, if I may say, to live by those. You have to lead by example in terms of your values and in terms of your culture. Recently, I, I was asked a question where somebody said, would you not hire a person who did not exhibit those? And I said, yes. And you know, somebody said, would you fire a person if they didn't? Or if, and I would say, yes. And, and I think these are important and these should be a navigator as one approaches different situations, different hiring decisions or different strategic decisions. It's important to live by them. I think the other thing I would say is to invest in highly 
competent people who are themselves passionate about the work. You know, one of the things we say all the time here is it is very important to enjoy the work that you're doing. And if this is not what you enjoy, then there are other roles that we can find where you could enjoy that. So I think it's very important to invest in highly competent people, but then to do a variety of different things to keep them and to help them find their own path. So in effect, the company finds its path, its most optimal path at the same time as many of the people who work within it also find their own optimal path, where they are able to learn and, and grow and do some of the things that they had intended to do as part of their professional growth journey. I think this is very much part of our values and our culture, which is that we like to say that we make decisions on the merits of ideas. You know, that's not always easy, but I think it's very important. And as part of that, and as part of building a culture that does that, one has to be open to hearing new information. But one has to also be able to change one's mind and adapt and, and pull the infrastructure and all of the other elements that go along to being able to adapt. And I think that that is a very important thing that has helped us as we have gone through our transformation journey over the last five years, where you know we've faced a variety of different constraints from, from cash flow to technological to people. And we always made decisions based on the merits of ideas and, and, the, and the team banded together on that. And that has been uh, extremely powerful and enriching experience for us as well. Well, thank you so much, Kush, for taking the time today to share with us your thoughts on how you build an innovation engine and a rapidly scaling organization. I appreciate your time. Wish you best of success with trilateral research and looking forward to see what the amazing innovations you and your team come up with in the future. Thank you for this opportunity, Thomas. It's a pleasure. So here are my takeaways from my conversation with Kush. Um, I think the trilateral story is one. It's a great innovation and transformation story. Key lessons learned for me are one, attract the kind of work that people really care about doing. I think it's a wonderful way to engage um, folks and, and commit them to the organization. Secondly, innovation requires interdisciplinary and cross-functional work. And it's very difficult to make happen, but it's absolutely critical to build innovative new offerings and business models. Thirdly, when you realize that your model has to change, looking at your assets is probably the best starting point. What are you already doing really, really well? What can you leverage? And fourth, well, in theory, there's a straight line between A and B, and you can see that line. The reality is it's never a straight line, so you need to be agile and flexible as you execute on your plan. Those are my takeaways. Uh, I found the conversation really insightful. Uh, I hope you do too. And I look forward to seeing you on one of the future podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.